Disrupt Radio, the sound of Australian entrepreneurial spirit. Self-improvement comes at a cost, physically, financially, but crucially mentally. How do you stay sane? Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or simply want to improve yourself. Are you overloaded, overwhelmed and just over it? On Soul Trader, you'll hear from individuals who have achieved huge things in life, how they keep it together, and how they survive the struggle to success. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, and this is Soul Trader. Disrupt Radio. From the moment you step into this world, you find yourself surrounded by a web of norms, standards, and predefined roles that attempt to shape you into a predetermined mould. These pressures though often subtle and sometimes even unconventional, can exert a powerful influence on your choices, on your self-perception, and on your aspirations. The path to liberation from these pressures is not an easy one. It requires a deep introspection, a willingness to challenge conventions, and the courage to embrace individuality. It's about recognising that your worth isn't dictated by how well you conform to societal ideals, but rather by how authentically you express yourself. The journey of overcoming societal pressures and expectations is multifaceted. It encompasses freeing yourself from the relentless pursuit of perfection that society dictates, acknowledging that your worth isn't determined by flawless appearances or picture-perfect lives. It means questioning the traditional roles assigned to you based on gender, age or social background, and daring to forge your own unique path. This journey is also about discovering your passions and ambitions, even if they diverge from conventional wisdom of what a successful career should look like. It involves embracing your true self, vulnerabilities and all, recognising that your authenticity is far more valuable than any mask of conformity. However, the path is not without its challenges. The fear of judgment, rejection or isolation can often hold you back from breaking free. But as you listen to the stories of those who have overcome these pressures, you realise the rewards of self-discovery and fulfilment far outweigh the temporary discomfort of stepping into the unknown. Today's guest knows this more than most. Tom Boyd lived the dream of many young Australians. As the 2013 AFL number one draft pick, he was marked as a future superstar in the sport. Fame and money were guaranteed, all the more so when he returned home to Melbourne to join the Western Bulldogs on a record-breaking $7 million contract. But success as a footballer came at a cost Tom wasn't prepared to pay. The intense scrutiny from the media and the public added to the enormous expectations he placed upon himself, creating a toxic cycle of insomnia, anxiety and depression. Soul Trader. People know your story, obviously, and a lot of our listeners will know your story, but for anyone that doesn't, would you be able to just give a bit of an overview about where you've come from and how you've gotten to where you are now and what you're now doing? So I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, Massive sport addict from a young age, basketball and football primary ones for me. By the age of 15, I was the state captain for the Victorian football side. And I was also basically selected in the state squad for the Victorian basketball side alongside the likes of Ben Simmons and Dante Exum. They're definitely better than I ever was. Don't worry. I wasn't going to go play in the NBA, but essentially got to the stage where I was doing, I think 12 sessions of sport a week. 
and really had to, well, silly as it may sound, decide which profession I wanted to go down in terms of the two sporting opportunities I had. And I always felt football was where my heart truly lay. I grew up uh, looking at my father uh, on the brick nicotine stained wall of, of Mullen Mullen Reserve, a junior football club in Norwood. And he was holding the Premiership Cup in black and white, had a BV getting poured over his head. So they, and he was always my hero. So that was where I wanted to end up playing footy. Maybe not in black and white, but nevertheless, I went down the football path. And the next two years were remarkably successful. I, I can say it now because if you say you're doing really well when you're actually doing it, it's arrogance. But if you look back, I can be relatively realistic that I had probably one of the best last two years to a draft experience that you can pretty much have. I'm selected in the national side for the AIS and played in our national championship for Vic Metro, won a TAC Cup premiership at the state level, TAC Cup team of the year player twice, All-Australian leading goal kicker, and eventually was picked up as the first overall pick in the 2013 national draft, which was, yeah, a fantastic honour. Then moved straight up to Sydney, 10 days post my final school exam, I was a, an AFL footballer. Mm. Four days after that, I was starting pre-season, living with two strangers in a different state, gone from amateur to professional, and left behind many of the things that really I valued around, you know, balance between my school and my sport and my family. And now my whole life is consumed with football. And to expedite the story in some degree, around the middle of the year, I was offered a seven-year, $7 million contract to become probably the second highest paid player to my knowledge in AFL history at the age of 18 by the Western Bulldogs. And after a tumultuous trade period, six months post that that offer first being tabled to me, um, I managed to get the trade through, even though I was still contracted to the Giants and amidst quite a bit of turmoil and returned to play at the Western Bulldogs for the following four and a half seasons before retiring at the age of uh, 23 in 2019. And, and amidst that, had you know, probably the most scrutinised career perhaps ever at that stage for a young, particularly for an 18, 19 year old. I don't think anyone had ever been under the spotlight as much as me at that age. And that was due to obviously the selection position that I was taking the draft and also that contract. But even more, it was the success in 2016 where I was a part of a premiership winning side for the Western Bulldogs, the first premiership since 1954 for the Western Bulldogs and a really significant moment in the club's history. Within that was a number of mental health issues, which we can dig deeper into after, I suppose, the summation of my career to date. But in 2017, six months after being on the stage of the MCG in front of 99,981 people and being one of the better players in the, on the day with a fantastic moment that sort of stood the test of time as one of the greatest goals or the most heralded goals in grand final history, I hadn't slept in weeks. I needed to take time off my job. My body was breaking down. I was getting sick, struggling to concentrate. And I was yeah in the darkest part of, of my life and had to basically, under all the scrutiny of being an AFL footballer, getting paid a million dollars a year, have to tell everyone that I yeah, wasn't okay and that I need time to, to recuperate. Got back to playing some football post that after many hours of therapy and, and, and work on myself and, and the things that that sort of are important to me and support some family and friends and um, decided at the end of uh, 2018 for the first time that I was probably ready to retire. I was injured at this stage, but got some really good advice from the club doctor at that, at that time and was told essentially, don't make life-changing decisions when you're injured. Wait till you get back out on the field and if you still don't want to play, then go ahead and do it. And 
that was certainly the case. And, and in May 2019, I walked away from the final two and a half years of my contract and the proportional amount of money I handed back to the footy club over $2 million and decided to move on to the next chapter of my life. And that was really unknown, I suppose. But the North Star was that I wanted to work in the space of positive mental health. And I wanted to help people understand how challenging, but also how important it is. And since then, I've basically comprised a life through all of the chaos of COVID and now obviously coming out the other side where I get to do that in a number of different means. So I'm an ambassador for Lifeline Australia, obviously one of the most important services that we can offer young people and people more broadly who are struggling in terms of having someone to answer the call when they're really in their lowest moments. I'm also an ambassador for WorkSafe, and that's really around getting a message of mental health and the importance of it out through country football in Nepal, which is really the most difficult area of Victoria in particular to reach. Uh, I work for a company called Everperform, which is a technology business, which looks at essentially improving the overall performance of the workplace, which includes wellbeing, as opposed to just looking at productivity. And finally, through COVID, managed to write my first book, Nowhere to Hide, which is really a look behind the curtain of a young person trying to find their feet in the spotlight. And I think the funny thing is that whilst I may have you know, lived a life that was relatively unique or definitely unique, the questions I ask myself are the same questions that many people and many young people ask themselves every single day. I wanted to make sure that people understood that regardless of your circumstances, whether they look perfect or not, the challenges certainly can, can pop up in your life and that being honest and open about them and dealing with them proactively is really the way to go. Absolutely, mate. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And it's a powerful story. I knew a little bit about it before this and I went and watched, looked up in more detail. And it's, I think it's an amazing message what you're doing. And you're still so young now to be having the level of maturity that you have to be getting this message out there. And it is, it's, I think it more than ever, it's an important message in society because we, we live behind a screen. We're looking at people's highlight reels on social media and we live in such a capitalistic world where everyone is looking for what's next and how do I get what that other person has and we don't realize what is actually going on behind the scenes. So it's it's just so important to get back to that, get back to basics and realize how do we be grateful for what's in front of us and how do we actually work out, you know, what we want, which like you're saying, you need that time when you're growing up to when you're in your late, late teenage years, early 20s to work that out. Yeah. How do we expect young people to be grateful for what they have when they can see the entire world? When we yeah. grew up, I don't know, how old are you? Are you? I'm 35 now, so a bit older 30, than you, mate. Yeah. yeah, not too much. I yeah. just turned 27. <laughs> yes. But even with me, right? So I, like, I just missed the social media age realistically going through school. Instagram wasn't really a thing. It hadn't matured into what it is today. MySpace was around, but that was a weird sort of engagement. Didn't have as much traction as the social media companies now. And Facebook wasn't the same either. It just didn't have the same influence that perhaps Instagram and of course, TikTok and the wonders of the world that have existed in the, in the past five or six years have really basically painted a world where instead of looking at people around you and benchmarking yourself against 10 people, you're benchmarking yourself against 5 billion, which is crazy. And I think the thing that I always thought about myself was as I was going through my initial struggles, which was really around like lack of sleep and anxiety, particularly in my first season of the Giants. What the first thing was, I didn't understand what it was. I, didn't, I wasn't taught about it at school. And I went to a good school in Croydon Hills and we learned about things holistically, but just never, it just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing in 2013 when I, when I graduated. So 
it was a foreign sort of feeling to me and a foreign sort of concept. But what I really felt like was if I can only get the outcome in my job that I want, things will improve. And I always just felt like the outcome came first as opposed to looking at life and going, this is the life that I want to live and then the outcome will follow. And the story I told myself for years and years was, I'm so unique and we're all unique people. And it's certainly true. It makes us complex and interesting and fascinating. And then the sort of social interactions and ecosystems that we build as people are, are things that, you know, are, are things to wonder at. But with that being said, as people, we generally experience the emotional experience of life in a relatively similar way. We have bad days. We have good days. We have really challenging periods of time in our life. There's grief. There's loss. And for me, the barrier to entry for asking for help and support was the fact that I just didn't think anyone could possibly understand. I was like, number one draft pick, there's only been 30 of them. You know, premiership player at 21, there's only 44 Western Bulldogs premiership players ever. $7 million contract, I'm the one of one. The only person who's ever been off and out of the age of 18. So when I added all those things together, it not only stopped me seeking some psychological support, but in a sense, it was like, how is my coach going to understand the experience that I'm going through? How can someone possibly understand what it's like to be abused in the street when you're 19 and told that you're worthless? Or, you know, how can anyone understand what it's like to stand in a bar at a birthday and end up in the paper because you had a drink with your friends? Like, I didn't, I just, I didn't think anyone could understand that experience. And one of the great lessons that I learned and I tried to get out of the book is that we are all people and we experience these things relatively similarly and there is no excuse or reason for you not to be able to access help. There's no shame. There's no guilt that should be associated with it. Your problems are just your problems and, and you need to deal with them as such. 100%. And listening to everything you're saying, and I can relate to so many of the experiences you had where I was grew up in a well-known family. I was thrown into the media at a very young age, getting in negative situations and having a lot of things thrown onto me and dealing with my own issues and having severe anxiety, severe mental health issues. And I'm thinking, what the hell's wrong with me? Like, how do I don't know how to talk about this. What do I do? And it's led to that similar cause of, I've got to get this message out there to help other people know. And the more you talk about it, and even for me hearing your story, that helped me just hearing that because I think as humans, we're storytellers. We learn from storytelling and we we like what you're saying before. We tell ourselves when we're going through something that that we're unique. There's something must be something wrong with me. Why am I different? But every single person is going through their own version of something. We're all like you said. We've all got similar emotions. We all have similar things that we go through. And the more we can relate and talk about, it, the more we can push this forward and start to actually help people and make these societal changes. Yeah. What's the number one differentiating factor between the human species and every other creature on earth is language, right? It's how we communicate, it's how we, we connect with each other. And it's one of the things that I've found to be most useful with regards to understanding my own story, because you can't tell it until you know it. And the funny thing I found with writing the book was, um, and, and I know that you've written one as well, is that when you talk about things, there's sort of like a rhythm to it, right? Like we're bouncing off each other. I'm bouncing from topic to topic. I can give you the summation of my life story in the two and a half minutes that I did at the opening question, right? 
But when you're writing about it, in particular, when you're trying to paint a picture of an experience or a moment in time, you actually have to almost go back to that moment and re-experience it to a degree. And you're not going to get a hundred percent of it, but you're going to get 30 or 40 or whatever the number is arbitrary at this stage. But that's the bit that I found most interesting and challenging about writing about moments, particularly when I was really struggling or moments where perhaps I wish I'd done things differently or where I wasn't proud of the space that I was in or I felt guilt or shame or whatever. It was like, okay, so I have to basically sit there in a dark room or in a room completely alone for 20 minutes staring at this screen going, what was I thinking about and what was I feeling at the worst moments in my life? Because that's really where the essence of the, you know, the insight is for people who read the book. And, you know, perhaps it was more cathartic, I'd say, than just talking about it. And it definitely gave me insight, which I can now relay orally rather than just in the written words. Yeah, it's just, we tell ourselves all of these things and we look at our lives or the lives of others. And if we go, we get it one bad thing and this thing and, you know, piece five or six things together, that's happiness. That's what it's going to be. And that exists so much in the workplace too, where you just go, if I just get that promotion or I just finish this project or just do this or just do that, there's always a silver bullet in our minds that's going to fix our problems. And I think for me, it was always just trying to get the outcome on the football field that was going to fix all of the issues I was facing in life. And at the end, you know, what I found was, you know, it was changing my life that fixed the problems, not the other way around. Which is, it's, that's what's, it's so powerful because it, it's, I haven't heard a story like yours where, like you said, the only player to get that kind of contract at such a young age and to make that decision to, to walk away from it, to be doing the thing that there's so many kids in Australia, they would do anything to be in that position, but you had that realization and you got to experience it and see firsthand, okay, this isn't the silver bullet. It's not the thing that's going to just solve all my problems and make me happy forever just because I've achieved this thing. What do I actually want? Who, do, who am I? What do I care about? And to make that, to be able to make that decision, I think takes a huge amount of self-awareness and a lot of, just a lot of strength, a lot of mental strength to do it. But it's, a, I think, such a powerful example to send to other people. It's like, um, yes, I, what I see is the great challenge of the world today is that people are getting, they get boiled down to just numbers or things, right? How many followers have you got on Instagram or how many dollars do you earn or what is your job or for me how many kicks marks and handballs did you get on the weekend and when I was growing up the sentiment that I was was drilled into me by my mother in particular who's Danish and from Scandinavian the Scandinavian sort of way of life in a sense is they're quite a proud group of people but there is this sort of inherent niceness and politeness and sort of properness that's associated with them and her biggest thing was mind your manners, be polite to people. There is a core value in treating people well. And I always held on to that. I always felt like that was something that was really important to me. And the other thing that they instilled in me greatly was education. And education was always the number one imperative in terms of my priority list growing up. Though I must say, it became a bit more difficult when it became evident I was going to get drafted, particularly at big one or at least high in the draft. But when I went through the football journey, I found that no matter what I said, did or experienced or provided or contributed, if I didn't get the outcome on the weekend, I was boiled down to an individual who was a failure. 
or not important or a disappointment or whatever it was. And sure, look, some of this was definitely in my own head, but that is the greatest thing that I felt was in conflict with me as a person. And one of the, basically the core reason why I left football in the end was not because I was sad and depressed or I wasn't going through my mental health challenges anywhere near to the degree that I was two years prior. I was just purely at odds with the fact that I felt like football didn't align with who I was as a person. And it, and it really felt like that it directly conflicted with what I thought was important. And that's why I decided that the best choice for me was to walk away because at the end of the day, I'm a realist. I feel like I'm relatively authentic in the things that I say and I'm relatively self-aware. If I kept playing under the guise of, oh, I'll just see how I go and I didn't have the passion and, and commitment that I needed to play football at the top level, I would have cost three players, four players, their actual opportunity to live out their dream. That's the calculus that happens because the average player salaries in the realms of $300,000 a year. Most of that is basically floated by the top 10 players in every team. The rest are all on 150, 175 grand plus, plus match payments. And all of those players couldn't fit into a million if, if that million wasn't there for them to, to take. And I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. Uh, I would have ruined every relationship that I had in that football club and um, certainly would have ended up, I'm sure, in a worse place than I did. This is Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I'm Nick Brax, and I'm talking about overcoming societal pressures with my guest, Tom Boyd. Have you seen in, I guess, the football in the AFL community and sport in general, mental health for a lot of the reasons that you're saying with being boiled down to a number, a lot of these societal things you're talking about, have you seen that being a big issue in general, in, in sport, in AFL? Um, no bigger than in society, I wouldn't say Yep. We, the same questions that, you know, again, to the point that we we're talking about, we're all unique, but we're all people. So the experience is not drastically different. I just think that there's two things at play here. One is that football is an extremely highly pressurized environment. It's, you mentioned earlier, being in the public eye at a young age, these kids are 18 and they're expected to be perfect. And I push back to a general footballing public at different stages or just people that I've spoken to is if you're offered $7 million at 18, what are you going to say? No, give me a spell. There's no chance that people would turn that down, but they act like they would. And that is the, the craziest thing to me. But the other thing is like, my question that I'd pose to people is, what would you do if you were given $7 million to play football at 18? What were you doing at eight? Like how capable would you have been to take on that financial opportunity and the responsibility and commitment that is required to execute on that? At the age of 18, when you've just finished school, it's just not something that people can get wrapped their heads around, I don't think. And again, other people's opinions are important to a point, but not in the broad landscape of Twitter or anything like that. So I think that's one part. It's the pressurized environment. The other part is that every single footballer, and I I was listening to an NFL sort of media personality talk about this, and I thought it was a really good way to put it. The thing that the football public forget is that the best footballer they've seen is the best footballer they've ever seen. And it's probably the captain of their local team who's getting 25, 30 disposals in division two in the Western Districts Football League, right? That's the best football I've ever seen personally. Like I, that's the best they played. He's not even good enough to play in division one, let alone play in the VFL, let alone play in the reserves of the AFL, let alone play in the AFL, let alone be a player that can contribute at the top stage. And I think just the, distance between, oh, that guy could have made it, but they didn't. They didn't make it for whatever reason. And at the end of the day, 
it's because they weren't good enough. And if they get injured, it's still because they weren't good enough because they weren't capable of their body handling the stresses of the game. And I'm not having a go at anyone. I'm just saying that the distance between the player that you think is great and the actual greatness of the Lance Franklins and the Darry Ablets of the game is so far. So with that in mind, when young players come into the game, they've been the best player they've ever seen at every level along the way. And when I walked in to the AFL environment, I had been the best player in my team since I was 12 years old, pretty much, give or take, at least in the best three or four. And I suddenly walked in and I was now playing against the best players that have ever played in the last 15 years, give or take. And that is a shock to the system for a lot of people because there's a huge reality check, ego check, bring back to earth moment that happens, I think. And then trying to redefine your identity in the mix of a whole other bunch of players who are insecure and trying to work out their own AFL experiences does provide this sort of sense of identity crisis, I would say, when you enter. But equally, probably in the time at the Bulldogs, we averaged a 20 to 25% list turnover. So 20 to 25% of the people that you're playing with every single day, which is essentially 10 or 12 people, are worried about not having a job in the next six months. Yeah, right. And a further 10 of them may be worried about getting traded. And a further 10 of them are going, am I going to get a game this week? And so there's just this sort of 75% number, if I had to estimate, that are uncomfortable all the time in the spotlight under the scrutiny of the AFL public and the media that goes along with it. So it's the nature of team sport, but it's the nature of professional sport as a whole. This is Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I'm Nick Brax, and I'm talking about overcoming societal pressures with my guest, Tom Boyd. Even players that have been around for a while in your mid-20s, they're still, in relative terms, young. And you've you've had an experience in one part of life, I guess, if you're going straight from school into that community, and you're not... It's almost another version, I'd imagine, of being in school or having this whole bubble around you where sheltered from other parts of life, which I guess what I hear about in sport and I guess the mental health side of when you finish your career, how do you then integrate into society and find re- redefine your identity, find what are you going to do and how do you go from being addicted? What you were saying before, even for you, how was that? I guess you consciously made that, but was it still a shock to the system from playing in a winning grand final at such a young age, almost 100,000 people screaming while you're kicking the goal that won the match and then two years later you're trying to find a new path for yourself like how could that not be a shock to the system the afl just signed a four and a half billion dollar tv rights deal and there'll be all this hoorah about this that and the other but the reason why it's four and a half billion dollars is because of the players and when i got traded back from the bulldogs to the bulldogs i should say i was 19 years old i did a sort of kiss the baby moment tom arrives at the kennel sort of thing which was down at williamstown north primary school and uh, do a clinic with some primary school kids, his son's out. And then we do a press conference. This is my first press conference as a Western Bulldogs player. The first question is, oh, what's it like to be back in Victoria? Or what do you think about this or that? And I was like, yeah, dog, great. So they actually started nice. And one of the second or third questions I got asked was, so what do you think this means for the overall trade player trade landscape? Because I was the first player to really get out of their deal at the age of 19. And I still had a further year on my contract to run, but we didn't negotiate it. There was a sort of a whole process that went behind the trade getting done. And I'm, now when I look back at that, 
Well, at the time I was like, I don't know, like I'm 19, like why are you asking me this question? But that's the, that is the mindset that people have towards footballers is like, you should have all the answers. You're getting paid so much money. Yeah. I'm like, I'm 19. Like most kids aren't even, most kids are on a gap here. What I, could, I could barely string a sentence together in 19. It's like, how the, yeah, how the hell are you, you meant to answer the, exactly. It's yeah, like so much pressure. Kids, how am I supposed to understand this like multi-dynamic, like hugely profitable, multidisciplinary industry that is associated with 15 million people across the country or whatever's the numbers? I'm like, it just baffles me. But I'll down the bookend when I finished. I remember one of the great things that I had with choice, as you mentioned in the question, and that was the choice to walk away on my own terms. And I walked into the football club for the last time. I'd seen the greats of the Western Bulldogs retire. I'd heard Dale Morris speak. I'd heard Matthew Boyd. I'd heard Bob Massey. And I'd heard all these players talk about, you know, for 20 minutes and the grief and how significant it had been for them to be at the club and how much of a sense of loss they had leaving. And they deserved that. They'd earned that right. I hadn't. I'd been there for four and a half years. I'd had a lot of I'd had a lot of challenges, some good games, some bad ones, and obviously some success as a team. So I walked in and I said two things. I was lucky enough to have my partner Anna with me. And, and I said, firstly, I just want to say to everyone in the room, thank you for being a part of my journey. And I just want you all to know, without a shadow of a doubt, you're the reason I stayed as long as I did, not the reason I'm leaving. I really wanted to be clear about that. And the second thing I said was, if any of you players in the room are thinking about renegotiating your contract, now would be a really good time. <laughs> Which gets. Just let me diffuse the room because I think everyone was probably feeling a bit tense and they'd known my struggles in the past. I wanted them to know that I was walking out by choice with some happiness and a fond memory of a challenging but over, uh, overwhelmingly positive period of time in my life. And then I had an absolute ball for two weeks. It was the greatest sense of freedom and excitement and relief that I'd ever had. And I remember sitting there on a Saturday watching the Bulldogs getting absolutely pumped by Freo or something, having a beer and she's just happy this. <laughs> and then two weeks later, I was like, holy hell, what am I going to do with my life? Because to your point, and I actually, you're, you're probably the first person who's asked the question, actually understood the process of leaving sport, which is me less than others, I would say, but you are a child because mm -hmm. you get told from the age of five, even beforehand, but let's just take the schooling experience. From the age of five, be here, do this, do that, come home, eat this, all the way to 18. When you're a footballer, it's not really any different. Turn up this time, do that, do this. What do you need? How can I help? It's basically like you've got a bunch of teachers and pe so they're not there to coddle you, but they're there to basically make sure you have as little barrier to performance success as possible. And then you leave the game and you get kicked off the club email in about five minutes, which destroys your calendar. You don't have access to it anymore. You lose all your contacts. You don't know how to... Oh, it's terrible. And it sets in the go, oh, what are we going to do? Now, I earned a lot of money in my football career. The math is not particularly difficult. A million dollars a year left, two and a half years left. Right? But I also had a lot of, a whole heap of taxes at that time. And I'm, that's not me complaining. It's just, just that's the nature of having how super high income in short periods. I can't spread it. I can't do anything fancy. It's income, it's wages, I pay tax. So I earned a lot of money and I was lucky enough to have financial freedom in the sense that I had the ability to walk away from my income and take the time to look at what life would look like next. But I didn't have enough money to not work and no players really do. And I think that's something that perhaps some people don't quite grasp in the sense that if anyone else in their regular life was told that the highest income earning capability you're ever going to have for your entire life is between the ages of 22 to 27, 
or 30, they would go, oh my God, this is terrifying. And I wasn't terrified, but I was very clear and honest with myself. And I sat down with my dad in my backyard and we did the math and it was like, okay, yeah, this is good. You're in a good position. You're going to find a job because you got to pay a lot of bills and you've got all this stuff that you've got to do. And I, and to the point of sort of fulfillment and satisfaction, I really wanted to work. So that sort of real discomfort actually spurred me on to, to really investigate. And, and to be honest, to be frank, I, other than a few speaking gigs that popped up, which actually I wasn't advertising for, I, I didn't even think I was going to do it. It just people asked me to share my story. I, I really volunteered for the first six months out of the game. I didn't have a job. I just, I committed to play football with an amateur club and they gave me the opportunity basically to sit in on different companies' meetings and learn some things and perhaps do some programs of work and get exposed to different people. And that's pretty much how I got by. I, I really didn't earn any income from basically May until the following January. But the other thing that, that happened was that I did see the path forward in particular in the speaking side of things. And I was like, okay, I know there's an income here. I know that I'm making a positive in, impact and I feel like I'm quite good at it. So let's go down that path. And much like I'm sure what you were experiencing, I got to the start of 2020 and was like, I've got 100 gigs or 50 gigs or whatever the number was. And I reckon I did two of them and then the world shut down. Yeah. And that time I was scared. That time I was concerned because now I'm looking at, if this doesn't open up in the next couple of months, I'm 12 months removed from basically not really having an income or not having a stable one at least. And it was in those moments with the fear and terror and you know, uncertainty that gripped the world. And again, I, this is not a comparable thing. I'm not saying I had it worse than others or anything like that. I'm just saying that it obviously upset my world just like it upset everyone's. That's when I thought for structure, I need to do something. And that's when I started writing the book for the first time by myself in the broom of my house, which was at that stage, a 150 year old house that needed a renovation terribly. That's, that was actually the first sort of next iteration of what I was doing for work. And then I started to, to again, basically volunteer with the technology company that I work with. And I've always operated on the sense it's like, I'll give something to you. And then at some point when I can show that I've given you value and that I've contributed, then we can talk about obviously me being rewarded proportionally. And in a sense, COVID was a really tough time. But in another sense, we, with Anna fell pregnant with our first child who was born this year. And I found that I actually didn't want to just do speaking. I didn't just want to be a talking head, but I actually wanted to do a number of different things. And I was lucky that COVID spurred me into doing that. Congratulations on the first child as well. And I love that story. And I think a big thing I talk about a lot on this podcast is the events that happen in life really shape that longer term picture. And it's it's like that saying, life only makes sense backwards, but must be lived forwards. And we have to just keep taking what's in front of us. And similar thing for me, during COVID, I was overseas, I'd come home, had all this time free, ended up writing the book, starting this podcast, and it actually became the time I needed to take a step back and do things that then propelled things forwards. And in your day-to-day life, do you have things for your own mental health that you do? exercise, is that still a big part of your life or meditation or are there daily things that you do to keep yourself grounded? Yeah, exercise has always been a big part of it. Honestly speaking, it's been more challenging since the arrival of the bub and I've got some work to do on the on the old rig. And look, then part of that is the fact that your football injuries don't go away when you finish playing football. I've had probably a thousand surgeries. I've had a back issue since I was 14. I've had multiple broken fingers, shoulder reconstructions, ankle operation. Like I've had a pretty good fair share, like probably slightly above average for an AFL footballer, but 
certainly not as bad as some of my other teammates. But look, I think the one thing that is really evident to me following from my football career is that doing purposeful work that you believe in with people that you care about and want to work with is a remedy for most ailments, I would say, mentally for me. Um, so that I would say is it. And look, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Again, it was a journey. It took a lot of time, looked took a lot of effort. My overall mantra in that front is just fake it till you make it because that's what I've had to do. And, I, and by the way, for all the people who are listening, still don't know what retention time is. Um, no one knows it's got it figured out. No one. I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or if you're a, you're starting your first job at McDonald's. No one has it all figured out. Everything is a challenge. There was always going to be complexity and things that you come across in your life that you're uncertain on how to deal with. So the best thing that I've found is just put a version of yourself out there that if you want to achieve something, put yourself out there. Have a go. You can always go backwards and start it yet, or you can always pivot and change. And and I don't mean that in the sense of, again, take away the financial burdens that many people struggle with. If you want to do something, fake it till you make it. There's my general sentiment on life. That seems to have worked to me. Yeah, that's th- those two things. I saw a psychologist for probably thousands of hours over the last, I don't know how many years, but I found that over the course of that journey from probably 2015 to 2000 and say probably the start of this year, that it just, we got to know each other so well that it, it just lightly lost its meaningfulness. But yeah, they're probably the main things. I'm not like, I'm no huge meditator. I'm not, again, it's, for me, it's always been about balance and just trying to find work that really fulfills me and satisfies me and allows me to stretch the intellectual muscles that were pretty dormant during my footballing career. Yeah, no, I love that answer. And I think, yeah, the fake it till you make it is such an important thing to remember. And I think what you said, finding things that have meaning for you, what's purposeful and that is different for everyone. But if you can find that, then and more focus on that daily, am I doing things that actually fit in my value system, meaningful to me, rather than focusing on all the external things, how much money am I making? When am I going to get to the next step? What's because we can't control that stuff. And like you said, that stuff's not is not what's going to make us happy anyway. So if you just always bring it back to that, you can't go too wrong because at least you strip everything else away. At least you're doing something you actually truly value and care about. So I think it's... And if, love if you follow a path to something that you love and that you are willing to commit to being really good at, then money will come. And yes. again, I'm very cognizant of the fact I try and be as authentic as I can. I've been paid a lot of money in my life. I earned a lot of money as a footballer. I get all that. And Financial hardship is an extraordinarily challenging thing that affects so many Australians and obviously people around the world. My general sentiment is that there is a always a balance between the two things, but if you can find a way to navigate purposeful work, you will find a way to get better at that work and scale that work and hopefully the money will follow. Keep doing what you're doing and thank you for making the time to have this chat today. Fantastic to meet you and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. The learnings from this interview can be applied to many different fields and stages of life. Probably the biggest theme in this interview was overcoming societal pressures. Tom discussed the significant pressures athletes face, especially from the public. Most athletes haven't had enough life experience outside of sports to identify their core values and beliefs. They're thrust into a position of being a role model when this may not be their choice. Many just want to play the sport and get overwhelmed by the responsibility placed on them. In Tom's case, he was the number one draft pick and signed one of the biggest financial deals in AFL history. This came with enormous public interest and intense pressure. With these expectations placed on him, he had no room to freely just make mistakes and learn as he progressed. 
This led to a private struggle with depression and anxiety. He started questioning why he was doing it if it made him so unhappy. At the age of 23, Tom decided to retire from the game. He turned down millions of dollars in a career many kids dream of because he listened to himself and decided to choose his internal needs over external validation. To be in such a position and make a decision like this takes enormous courage, self-awareness and self-esteem. Tom's ability to walk away from a lucrative contract showcases the power of resilience and self-awareness. Recognising when a situation doesn't align with your values and having the courage to make difficult choices is a sign of inner strength. In an age where external forces such as social media influence us on a daily basis, Tom's story serves as an important example to all of us. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about people dedicating their lives to making money, finally achieving enormous wealth, only to become completely depressed and lost. If you're always placing your happiness in external outcomes, you will always be dissatisfied. It's only once you get off this treadmill and create your own measures of success that you can find that peace of mind. The interview highlights the need to strike a balance between pursuing ambitions and prioritizing mental health and emotional well-being. Success is multidimensional, encompassing personal growth and happiness. Tom's now dedicating most of his time to helping support others in mental health. He's learnt that while individual experiences may differ, the emotional challenges individuals encounter are often similar. Recognising this shared human experience can foster understanding and empathy among people facing various struggles. By sharing his story and connecting with others, he's creating a community of like-minded people. The interview sheds light on the prevalence of mental health challenges in the broader sports world. The pressure to perform, maintain a perfect image and cope with high-stress environments are struggles that athletes share with the broader society. Additionally, they often fall into a deep depression once they retire. After spending their entire life dedicated to a singular pursuit and receiving the validation and excitement that comes with it, they can be left completely lost and alone when they retire. Even Michael Phelps, probably the most decorated Olympian in history, became suicidal following his retirement. One of the key things this highlights is the core human need for daily purpose. We're told that life will be forever joyous if we achieve huge success, but the case studies show different results. There are studies showing that once you make above $80,000 per year, your happiness barely changes. Once your core needs are met, you don't actually need much else. Of course, it feels good to become successful, but the most important thing is maintaining daily purpose. Many athletes don't have the life experience or guidance to plan for dealing with this in advance. It's just another reminder that we're all human and we need to have empathy and look out for each other. Tom also highlighted the identity crisis athletes can experience when transitioning to professional sports. The shift from excelling at lower levels to competing at the highest level can trigger self-doubt and insecurity, reinforcing the importance of working on yourself outside of your career. The interview touches on the financial aspects of transitioning from a high income earning period during a short athletic career to building a stable income after retirement. Tom mentions the need to handle financial planning carefully and manage post-athletic income. A significant takeaway is the necessity of seeking help, even when facing unique circumstances. Tom's experience shows that reaching out for support is a sign of strength, as everyone grapples with challenges at different points in life. You can reframe challenges as opportunities for growth and learning. Every experience contributes to shaping character and understanding, enabling you to emerge stronger from adversity. Tom's definition of happiness centers on a purposeful and meaningful life, engaging in fulfilling activities and nurturing relationships. 
His pride lies in the quality of his relationships and their positive impact. This underscores the importance of nurturing meaningful connections. In essence, Tom's interview serves as a powerful reminder that authenticity, resilience, and mental well-being are crucial for navigating life's challenges and achieving personal fulfillment. His story resonates with a wide audience, extending beyond the world of sports to anyone seeking a more meaningful and purpose-driven life. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. (laughs) Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and, you know, incorporate it. Online and on demand at Disrupt.radio.